Why don't you read with me Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, where we left off. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to Jesus, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples, they do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but the new wine must be put into new wineskins. Now it happened, we're skipping ahead to another story. Now what happened is they were walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees said to them, Look, who do they, or why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those who were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the son of man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. And he entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched Jesus closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They want to bring formal charges against Jesus. This is a setup. And he said to the man with the withered hand, step forward or stand up in the the presence of us all. And he said then to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. What do you think things would look like if Satan was given absolute free reign over our city, what do you think it would actually look like? I mean, for some of us, we'd probably cringe to think, like, what, what would that really feel like? What would that really look like? Some of us, we might even blush and feel embarrassed at the thought of voicing it, like publicly saying, well, this is, we, we think, maybe the twisted, perverted, broken kind of stuff that we'd see in our world or in our city that we'd assume that he would create if he had 100% complete control of our city. But I want to read to you something that was written over a half century ago by a pastor and author by the name of Darnold Barnhouse. It's actually a scenario that he offered in his weekly sermon that was broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Over 50 years ago, here's what he said. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, which was the city that he pastored uh, a church in, he said that all the bars would be closed. If Satan took over, pornography would be banished. And the pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There'd be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ would not be preached. For some of us, we almost choke a bit 
on, on Barnhouse's assessment. Because when we think, sometimes we think that those godless things that, that those people are doing and promoting are what's ruining our good world that we, the good people, are, are trying to create over here. It's those people and what they're doing. But it reveals a real danger that exists in our hearts that we, the self-proclaimed good people, are, are sometimes by definition godless because we view ourselves as already righteous. And therefore, we have no personal need for God. You see, there's a danger that the bad people around us that we we'd assume are the bad ones, that they have no interest in God. But the real danger is that us who call ourselves the good people can also see no need for God. The real danger, maybe the gravest danger for us, may be to have religion, but no real sense of repentance in our life. Think about this. If Satan can simply attack the church successfully, then he doesn't need to attack the culture outside of it really at all. And so maybe then his goal isn't merely to make those we classify as like the morally neutral to push them to being bad. So much as his goal may be to make those that we classify as the morally upright to make them good in their own eyes, to make them self-righteous. I mean, really think about this. If he aims at the church and successfully makes us righteous without repentance, religious without repentance. If he leaves us self-righteous without a savior, then he's left the whole world lost in darkness. The whole world would be lost either in darkness of their own wickedness or their own self-perceived righteousness. But the tragedy is that either way, a savior hangs on Calvary's tree for nothing and no one. If even considering all this, if it, if it almost leaves some of us a little bit offended, like I feel like it ruffles my feathers a little bit to think that, that maybe that's what Satan would do is just have a bunch of good churchy people, these good people roaming the streets, but having no need for Christ or, or never hearing of Christ. If, if there's a part of us that's almost bothered by that, we ought to look in a mirror and maybe take the slow, long walk back to the cross personally this morning. Because we have to be willing to repent, not just of our own wickedness, but I think the longer that we are the churchy people in a culture, then we also need to get used to repenting of our own self-proclaimed righteousness. Because the dangerous reality is that for many in, I think, American evangelical churchy culture, is that we'd be willing to speak up against our culture's loose morals sexually or, or to show up to march against uh, the, the fight or, or to march for uh, the, the fight for the unborn. It'd be that we'd be willing to plant the sign uh, that, that sits on our lawn that, that speaks of the, the sanctity of marriage and the definition of a marriage. All the while, our own self-righteousness is shielding us from the Savior who loves us because we no longer feel that we need a Savior at all. We instead just need God to intervene and stop those kinds of people who are ruining the good world that we, the morally upright, are building all on our own now. You see, I think religious moralism may be more dangerous even than what we look at as the world's hedonism. Because one is outward and clearly seen, godless action that is defiant of God, in fact. It's outward and clearly seen by all, while the other one, my moralism, is internal and easily concealed and very difficult for me to even at times self-diagnose. Because religious moralism, it's that, that attitude that I'm safe because I'm better than someone else mentality. I'm safe because I can compare myself to someone else and I'm assuming that God grades on the curve. 
There's a grave danger for many of us churchy people that we face. It's that we can live out our life in faith and have it only be cultural Christianity and not genuine Christian faith. Paul would write the church in Galatia and warn them, are you so foolish? Have you become so senseless? Have you began your new life by faith with the spirit? Are you now being perfected and reaching spiritual maturity by the flesh? That is by your own works and effort to keep the law. You see, cultural Christianity is the broken denomination of moralism. That works-based religion, like I said, where God grades on the curve, but the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus is so very different than that. In fact, it's terribly offensive to the moralist because it tells you that you're so broken that it's far worse than you'd imagine. So broken, you are beyond repair. In fact, Jesus would use terms like rebirth, not reform that you and I would need. It's offensive to the moralist because it tells me that I'm far worse than I'd ever thought. But the beauty of the gospel is that I'm also simultaneously far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. You see, Jesus' teachings, when he shows up and starts interacting with the culture that he found himself in, his teachings were meant to shatter the self-righteous hearts that, that were alienating people from the Father because what his teachings did was absolutely level the playing field. I mean, think back even our series in the, I guess it was the fall as we closed out the year, as we talked about the story that Jesus told in Luke 15 of his two, the two wayward sons and the prodigal father, the reckless father who was gracious to both of them. You remember in the story, both of those sons were lost. One had an outward waywardness, the younger son who rebelled and left. But then there's the older son who had an inward waywardness. One was separated because we call it his badness. The rebellion that was in his heart, whereas the other one was separated because of his own self-perceived goodness. It was the pride in the older brother's heart that drove him far from the father. But by the end of Jesus' story, we realize that neither of the two sons that Jesus spoke of were safe. And the troubling thing was you start to realize in the story that one was in more danger than the other. As one commentator masterfully put it, he said, the elder brother was not lost in spite of his goodness. He was lost because of his own goodness. All this to say, what would things look like if Satan took complete control of our city? Well, maybe he'd simply aim at making bad people good and making immoral people moral because all the while, all the while lost people are still lost and they're still yet to be found. They're still yet to be rescued and saved because they don't see a need for a savior. That's the danger is that it's possible to embrace morality, but to actually have the byproduct of our embrace of morality be that it pushes us farther from our own need for a savior because we view ourselves as no longer truly needing a savior, us good people. You know, there are two attacks I think that are cyclical all throughout church history that I would say even all throughout creation since the fall in the garden, two cyclical attacks that, that are aimed at the church by our enemy. And one of them is moralism. And the other, I think, is on the opposite side of the spectrum is maybe more of a secularism. And because these are cyclical, these exist today. Moralism, because our hearts seem to be naturally bent towards it already. And it's dangerous because it leaves the savior outside the proverbial church doors. We can just become good people, but not Jesus people. And then secularism, the other side or the other extreme, the roots of it provide or produce a broken fruit that goes all the way back to the garden itself, 
where from the garden you find mankind reaching up for the very first time to take what was God's and God's alone, to take it for himself and to pull it down the right to define good from evil, right from wrong. That's the fruit of, of secularism. And then you find that cycle again and again manifest throughout the story. It's not just in the garden. It's at the Tower of Babel. It's not just there. It's seven different cycles in the book of Judges. It's not just then. It's the northern tribes of Israel moving up towards the north of Israel and making their own set up there for, for worship, their own uh, little altar that would be used for sacrifice, where they're defining and rewriting what God gave as guidelines and expectations for what was right and how to do things. It's something you'd find echo and cycle all throughout church history, even in modern times. What, what a generation ago people called uh, secularism is something we presently call progressivism, a progressive gospel that just says you're okay and I'm okay. That the culture, the thought is the culture around us has changed and, and we think God's expectations have changed with it. And we're now going to define, redefine what God's expectations are. In fact, Jesus said, you'll do greater things than me. So what's that greater thing? Well, now there's a modern movement within the church uh, that, that that greater thing is that they're going to bring about a moral reform where they're redefining what's wrong and what's right, where they're reaching up to grab of the forbidden fruit, to take what was only God's alone, the right to define right from wrong, good from evil. And so now there's this moral reform happening in the church where there are churches who are now redefining what's right and wrong. And they're saying that God doesn't any longer care about matters of sex or sexuality or sexual expression. And all of that's fine. You're okay. I'm okay. Do whatever you want. It's not a problem because God no longer views things the way that we think he used to view them. It's a version of Christianity that's not Christian at all. It's not. It's not Jesus. It's not another side of the same coin. It's a completely foreign currency altogether. Now, why do I say this? Because Mark, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, he puts a few stories together. Mark's bent was not about being a chronological gospel, but more of a thematic one. And he crams a few stories together in the life of Jesus together in one place to focus our attention on Jesus dismantling one of those two cyclical attacks that Satan brings against the church. And that thing that Jesus is going after to dismantle is that idea of religious moralism. That's what he's attacking in these stories here. In fact, I believe that all of chapter two, even trailing into chapter three, is all about Jesus' opposition to the religious leaders and more specifically him dismantling the broken religious system that they created for themselves and that they held over the heads of the people around them. Think about it. It's chapter two. It's Jesus looking at the paralyzed man and saying, your sins are forgiven. And the guys lose their minds because you can't do that. You're not allowed to do this. There's a temple and a priest and a sacrifice that must do this. But Jesus himself will fulfill all of those aspects of what's required so that this man could be forgiven. But there'd be no room for Jesus' love or grace. It's then when he calls a tax collector later in chapter two. If you just befriended a tax collector, the Mishnah tells you that you are considered unclean to have that kind of close contact with one. And Jesus would say to them, verse 17, chapter two, I came for the sick, not for the righteous. The righteous, the self-proclaimed righteous. The point was not that some of you are righteous and you don't need a savior. The point was that some of you have already decided you're righteous. And so you've decided you don't need one, but you're missing it. You see, like, like I said earlier, salvation is not just merely a judge's verdict. It's a doctor's treatment that he provides for us. It's not just my legal standing that God will alter. It's me that he heals and changes as a person. 
And now Jesus, in our stories we just read, he sets his sights on the, the fasting and the, and the Sabbath traditions of the religious leaders that they had made into something that was an unnecessary burden to put on people's shoulders, but also a broken system that they were using to judge themselves to say that they were right and righteous by their own works. You see, moralism typically has this awkward cousin who's present with her, and it's traditionalism. The moralist finds a set of rules that leaves them feeling good about themselves, and then there's no room for anyone to ever touch the structure that they've built around themselves. They'll resist and fight the change because what's at stake is not just their own safe shelter that shields them from others. It's also shielding them from the reality of their own messiness. They'll fight to protect their traditions because it's protecting their safe space that they exist in that makes them feel good enough. And for the religious leaders in Jesus' day, there was no room for Jesus to arrive and push over the fences that they built, fences that kept others out and that made them feel safe inside. There's an author and pastor by the name of Paul Tripp. Here's how he put it. He said, their pride and identity is not rooted in God's work on their behalf, but on their own work. And that's moralism to a T, that it successfully chokes the life out of the gospel and out of Jesus himself. In our text, though, their moralism is on display in fasting and in Sabbath. So fasting is the the first little vignette that's brought up by uh, Mark as he's telling the life and story of Jesus and his gospel. Fasting, in the Old Testament, there's only one day a year that God told his people that he wanted them to fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement where the high priest would go into the presence of God to offer a sacrifice for sin and, and atone for the sins of the people. For them to fast on that day as a nation created an annual reminder of the sobering severity of their sin, that it was a serious thing, but it also would create a beautiful portrait and foreshadow of what Jesus would do for us. But in Jesus' day, many Jews would also fast to commemorate uh, broken moments in history, to commemorate tragedies and and things that were awful that that would have taken place in Jewish history, or they would even fast when someone would die as a a sign of their mourning. Uh, Fasting, in fact, in in some ancient traditions that are a little bit more fringy and on the outskirts of the Jewish tradition, some some smaller little trending groups, uh, they practiced it, fasting, because of fear of demons. They thought that some in this fringy group, uh, that demons gained power over someone by them eating too much. And so they would choose to fast so that demons wouldn't have power over them. Now, for some of you, um, it's Mother's Day, so I'd never put my wife in this group. But for some of you, you, the opposite seems true in your life, where if you don't eat, you get very hangry. And if there's a demon present, he's present in that moment when you're extra hangry. Um, My wife and I's first date when I picked her up, her mom greeted me at the door and said, can I give you a word of advice? She said, when, she, when the girl says she's hungry, you feed her. And she was right. Listen, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, Jesus will point it out in Matthew's gospel, or actually, I think it's in Luke 18. He would point out that they fast twice a week and they make it a big deal. On Mondays and Thursdays, historians tell us the religious leaders regularly fasted and Jesus made it clear that they did it in the public spectrum or public forum. They wanted others to see it. That was their goal all along. Matthew chapter six, where he tells us, you turned fasting into something that it was never meant to be. And he refers to them as hypocrites because he said, you've been fasting so that you'd be seen by men and so you already have your reward 
What you wanted anyways was for others to look at you and admire you and say that you're better than them because look how spiritual you are. Great, you got what you wanted already. You didn't do this for God. You did this for yourself so that you felt righteous. And Jesus will respond to their question here about why aren't your disciples fasting? He'll respond with a wedding analogy. Now, you know that a wedding is and it was marked by music and laughter, joy and celebration, feasting and fun. So if someone showed up at a wedding in sackcloth and ashes fasting while others were feasting, it'd be more than just an odd statement. It would really be insulting to those who invited you to join in in the celebration of their love if you showed up in sackcloth and ashes and saying, I'm fasting, this is not a good day for me. It would obviously be a weird, and that's the imagery Jesus uses. Now, I, I've been in or at some weddings that have had some awkward moments before. Um, they typically involve best men and too much alcohol, holding microphones. And one of them was the guy getting up to give his toast to his brother and saying his lead in was, uh, he took the mic and he just says, I never liked my brother. And people laughed like you did. And then he corrected them and said, no, I'm being serious. We've never liked each other at all. And it was a very sad moment. And I was thinking this week of another one I was at with Lindsay and I together. Oh my goodness. The guy got up and says, you know, I like this one so much more than your first wife. <clears throat> now, the, the ring bearer and the flower girl, that was their, their mother that he was thrown under the bus in that moment. And then he just commented about how she was the worst. And everybody's like, please turn his microphone off. <laughs> of all the awkward things, though, what if, an entire, what if everyone showed up? All of us were invited to a wedding. What if all of us showed up in sackcloth and ashes? We'd sunken eyes, hadn't eaten in days, were fasting and telling people as we walk in, kind of hunched over, holding our stomachs, going, I'm here in mourning today. I mean, it'd be so uncomfortable. And that's the nonsensical, awkward imagery that Jesus is painting, saying, why are you telling these guys that they should be fasting? It would be as if they showed up at this grand celebration like that scene. Jesus tells them, now is the time for celebration. This is the time to celebrate because, he says, the bridegroom is here. In fact, in the Old Testament, God is the groom and the nation of Israel is his bride. In the New Testament, Jesus will take on the imagery of the bridegroom and the church becomes his bride. So for Jesus to make this claim is, is quite a statement about himself, connecting it to deity. But then he'll add to that dialogue a statement that brings the shadow of the cross over that moment when he says, but the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. And the verbiage means to be taken away by force. And so the cross shadow casts over that moment. And then Jesus quickly uses two other familiar analogies that are very practical. And one of them has to do with patching a torn garment with a new piece of fabric. And maybe you've not had that experience. I mean, most of us, I'm sure, had some wannabe punk rock stage, or maybe it was just me in life. But I remember patching some jeans with a new patch of fabric that I didn't pre-wash. And so then once I washed the two together, the new piece shrunk. And when it did, it tore away from uh, the, the jeans that I was trying to patch the hole on. It, it shrunk that piece of cloth and then tore it away, rendering both useless. It, it was a, a feeble attempt at not just fixing the jeans, but being punk rock and... Um, both were a bad, bad stage in life, I guarantee you. But we understand the imagery. That's what he's saying here. And then he says, maybe something a little less familiar to us, is he said it'd be like putting new wine that still needs to ferment. And because of that, it would expand in the wineskin. He says it's like putting new wine into an old wineskin. 
Now, there's nothing innately wrong with an old wineskin. It had, however, already served its purpose by expanding with the previous batch of wine. When the gases and things would begin to expand and create pressure, it would stretch and stretch and stretch with it. It would now, however, be rigid and unable to flex and expand with a new batch of wine because it had already been stretched to its limits. He just said, why mourn when hope has arrived? Why grieve when love has come down? It's It's a bridegroom at a wedding feast. He's talking about a new cloth here and about new wine. He's telling them, I am doing something that's worth celebrating that's a completely new thing. This is not a new look or a new spin on an old religious system. This is not just patchwork I'm here to do. What I'm here to do is something completely new and different. To make a new way for you to be connected to the God who loves you because I will meet every expectation that he has on your behalf. He's telling them, your tradition, your way of thinking, your moralism is utterly incompatible with what I'm doing. The gospel itself will be destroyed if you mix and mingle it with your moralism. It'll be like the wineskin that bursts and the wine that pours out all over the ground. It's been wisely said the Christian life is not a mixing of the old with the new. It's the fulfillment of the old in the new. And Jesus is making it clear to his audience that the paradigm and framework of expectations that they held on to so very tightly would never allow the flexibility or capacity for the grace that Jesus was here to shock them with. I'm tempted to, I will, I'll I'll take a minute. Allow me a little bit of liberty here with this idea of of the imagery of wine and wineskins. Because what Jesus says here about new wine and old wineskins, it's clearly talking about him and what he will accomplish. So it leaves us with some really, really direct application. And the really direct application is, will I empty myself of my own moralism in order to make room for the grace and love of Jesus that needs to fill that empty space? There's also direct application. Will I yield to God's surprising and unexpected work in my life even when, especially when it leaves me with unmet and disappointed expectations, will I yield to it even in those moments? But there's also, I think easily we could pick up on some indirect application here. I think that would even be in regard to our church family here and the new work that God's doing here, which like was the case in Jesus' illustration, it doesn't mean that anything was wrong with any previous wineskin, in fact, when I came here my very first Sunday as the pastor here at this church, I told you we're, this church will continue to plant the same seed. We're going to be a Bible church for sure. And that seed will germinate in the same soil because I share the hearts that, that Scott before me had, uh, that, that we both have the heart of a shepherd for a simple church, a local church, a local flock. But I did tell you that that might bring about inevitably a different vintage. It's the same seed, the same soil, but it might produce a new flavor. And and there's a way for used wineskins to hold a new work, but it would take work. You'd have to soak and massage the leather to loosen it once again. And so I would just want to thank you for doing what's uncomfortable and natural for most of us. You see, most of us, we're resistant to change and we're typically put off by it. 
But for you who are the original church folks who are here and you've remained here through this transition, but I'd even say for those of you maybe who are people who've known me before this or recently joined us, this is still a new work for us to step into together that we believe God is doing, but it does stretch us a bit. And, and we can come with already our own expectations of how things should be or, or arriving having already been stretched and formed by life experience and be settled into how we like or prefer things to be. But a simple church that meets and an elementary school's lunch tables with a quirky young pastor probably doesn't fit many of those paradigms that you were prepared for. And yet you're here. And so I thank you that, that you didn't just bail out because you decided I don't like a new logo or I don't like a change to the website or I don't like the length of Trevor's talk. I, I don't like the nerdy bits that he adds in. I don't like the shuffling around of new faces or new styles for those who've been leading us in worship over the last couple of months. I hate the fact that I, it's a BYO chair event. I, I don't like a few weeks ago, they tried out some new cameras to try to give an upgrade for those who are still joining us online because they're homebound. I, I, what, what's gonna happen when, when you decide, well, I don't like now that we're able to go back inside that now I need to be uh, wearing a mask and I was starting to get used to being outside and some of the flexibility it gives, is that the thing that will burst the bubble or burst the wineskin and cause it to, to, to start to pour out all over the floor? Listen, if, if God brings about a new vintage here, I really believe that it means that you and I are gonna have to be stretched and be willing to yield to ways that it's going to be uncomfortable for us and things that for us, it might even be the way that we wouldn't have chosen it to be. But I wanna commend you that you've stuck with it and that you're here, a part of a quirky new work of God that's got this funky flavor to it, that new vintage, uh, but I sure appreciate it. Okay, now real quick, before we move on uh, from the idea of fasting, was Jesus anti-fasting? Well, no, because he says here, then they will fast. Once the bridegroom is gone, then they will fast. Remember earlier in Mark chapter one, Jesus himself went off to fast and pray. So was he anti? No, not at all. But what's the goal of fasting? You need to know fasting is not about twisting God's arm and making him comply. This is not a diet plan, nor is it to be viewed as a hunger strike. It's the denial of some physical need I have or some physical pleasure I find. It's a denial of that to reorient myself around my deepest need, which is God alone. So why would we fast? Well, it's not necessarily to get something from God as if I have to earn credit or favor or coins that I can deposit in heaven's vending machine. It's not that. It's me reminding myself that all I truly need is found in God alone. It's not just abstaining from something. It's choosing to, in its place, to engage with God. It's bigger than just an intermittent fasting trend. It's, it's fasting and praying, asking to experience more of God and his goodness. It's fasting and praying, asking to receive more of his heart, implanting and, 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 and impressing, imparting that into my life. It's fasting and praying for clarity, for his direction and desire, his will for my life. That's what fasting is all about. But shift gears with me quickly away from it. Last week we discussed Sabbath and that might sound like the most boring thing in the world and maybe for some of you it was. I had a ton of fun talking to you about the idea of Sabbath and so we won't slow down too much here uh, because we already covered Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders in the grain field. Skip ahead in your mind to Jesus in the synagogue as chapter three began there. Whereas Jesus walks in, it looks like a setup. The Pharisees were like the religious police. Remember like hyperactive paparazzis first spying on Jesus' disciples as they walked through a grain field. And now they're planting a guy in the synagogue on the Sabbath as a trap. I mean, talk about compassion or, or having none of it. 
that they're now going to use this person, a human being, as a trap, exploiting his misfortune, his hurt, his disability, in order to try to trick and trap Jesus. Now, commentators and historians will tell us that the topic of Sabbath and a physical treatment, or excuse me, a physician's treatment on a Sabbath were hotly debated. Many believe that unless your illness was life-threatening, that it would be wrong for you to go seek the, the care of a physician to be healed or be treated in any way, unless, of course, you were giving birth. That was a caveat. So was it wrong? Were they breaking tradition regarding the law to treat and to help and to heal someone who was ill? Jesus would pose that question to them publicly. The historian Jerome actually tells us a little bit about this guy Jesus heals. He says that his job vocationally was that he was a mason who worked specifically with plaster, which tells me if he worked with his hands and now one of his hands is crippled, that he lost his identity, his ability to work. But he also, the culture would tell me he also lost his credibility because the proverbial or prevailing line of thinking was that to be disabled was to be cursed. Even for the Jews, they believed that sickness was often sin's symptom. So he loses not just his identity in the community, his ability to work, but also his credibility in the community. Which meant that when Jesus steps up and heals him, it gave him a chance at life again. Yes, to work again, but bigger than that, a chance to love and belong and be accepted again. This is a huge deal, what happens here. One of the things that stands out to us in the story is that it says in verse five that as Jesus looked around, away from the man and at the crowd, at the setup, that he's angry with them, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. He then tells the man to stand up and says to him, stretch out your hand. That's crazy because... He's now drawing attention to an already embarrassed man and saying, stand up for us and stretch out what cannot be outstretched. He asked him to do something that was impossible. In fact, this is something Jesus does all throughout the Gospels. You probably have other instances come to mind where Jesus will interact with someone and as he responds to them, as, as he sees their need, he asks them, commands them to do something that's impossible for them. And then as people respond by faith, he enables them to fulfill the command that was otherwise impossible for them. It's to the lame man. He said, hey, get up and walk. Take up your bed and walk. It's to the man with the crippled hand, stretch forth your arm. It's to Lazarus where he stands outside his, his tomb and says, come forth. What God commanded them to do, he made them able to do when they, by faith and obedience, took a step forward. Listen, it's a, it's a simple reminder for us, but it's huge. If God has commanded you to take a step of faith outside your comfort zone or even what you feel like is possible for you, know that he will enable you to do what he's called you to do, which doesn't mean that there won't be forms of opposition or a storm ahead of you because he had told the disciples as they obeyed his command to take the boat and go to the other side, they faced a monstrous storm. But we know with confidence that our God is always bigger than whatever that storm may bring us. And that he loves us and is not indifferent to us. Listen, here's my point very simply for the day. It's that there's nothing that God requires of you that he has not also provided for you. He made the man able to do what was otherwise impossible for him to do. And that's the gospel. That's it right there in a nutshell. That there's nothing that God requires of you that he has not also provided for you. That he makes a man able to do what was otherwise impossible for him to do. That is what Jesus precisely accomplished for us. In the story, Jesus is angry and, and we can scratch our heads and go, hang on, but is it sinful for him to be angry? Well, in Ephesians, it tells us, be angry and sin not. 
It's possible. In fact, it's right for us in moments to be angry and, and yet it not be sin. It's right to be angry if you're right with the right things and if you're angry in the right way. Listen, I have three kids. If someone hurt one of my kids, I'd gladly shift from this ministry to a prison ministry, which is because I'd be angry at the right things. I might go about it the wrong way, though. Listen, anger for many of us is this messy thing, though, that is potentially best described as the thing that drives messy thoughts and actions because I'm angry about something someone did to me or how they took a shot at my reputation or, or, or damaged my image. I'm angry and, and I'm wanting to get even or have people begin to see them the way that I see them. But that's not how Jesus was angry. In fact, why was he angry? He says he's angry because of the hardness of their hearts. It's a hard heart that, that lacks compassion for someone that needs help. It's a hard heart that creates a religious system that was unhealthy and impossible, that they made even the Sabbath into something God never created nor intended it to be. And again, if you missed that talk, hop on the podcast because I had a great time talking about that with you last week. But he's angry because of what's been concocted right there in front of him in that moment, in the public square, in the synagogue, on the Sabbath. They're exploiting this man and his pain. Remember, Jesus had said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And to restore this man's hand is precisely an example of what Sabbath was all about. He'll restore what was diminished. He'll replenish what was empty. He'll repair what was broken. That was what Sabbath was all about. Remember, Jesus was never angry with those who are classified as sinners. Jesus, however, more than once in the Gospels, expresses anger towards the self-righteous who approached him. Listen, most of us as people, we believe that if, if there's a God, you relate to him by doing it and, and by being good. Like a code of conduct, if, if I obey, then God will look at me with favor. If I perform, if I obey, then and only then am I accepted. But the gospel of Jesus is not just so different from that. It is entirely in opposition to that line of thinking. It's a broken line of thinking. For me to take my relationship with God and make it some performance-based relationship leaves me with one of two results. It either leaves me self-righteous like the Pharisees, thinking that I'm better than others because I try harder. But more often than not, it leaves me defeated. Either way, it leaves me full of resentment. I resent others saying, why aren't they trying as hard as I am? Or I resent others saying, well, why, why do they have it easier than me? Because they seemingly are doing better than me, or, or they seemingly have less challenges than me. And so now my resentment is not just to them, but it's to God as well. Listen, to twist your relationship with God that comes through faith in Jesus into a moralistic approach that works hard to be acceptable to God will leave you exhausted and honestly feeling very, very empty. And I know that because I've been there. Because I came to faith in Jesus because I realized I wasn't good enough, but then somehow I've allowed my relationship with God in seasons of my life to become me trying as hard as I could to become good enough. The very thing that drove me to Jesus in the first place was now the thing that made me shudder from his presence where now I need to feel good enough to approach him. And in those moments, we have to realize we've, we've strayed from the true gospel. And in those moments, it's time to repent and take the long walk back to the cross. 
You see, the purpose of the law was not to give us assurance that God and others would see us and then approve of us because we're such good people. Its purpose was never to meet, meant to leave any of us feeling good about ourselves. And its purpose has always been to expose my deep need for a savior because of how, how far short I fall when I try to live up to its perfect standard. But here's the thing, religion's motive is insecurity. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel's motivation is the opposite, it's security. I'm accepted, therefore I get to obey. You see, there's nothing you can do that will make you or that will make God love you any more or any less. In creation, when God finished his work, he would rest. And in redemption, God would do all of the work needed and then he would rest. And one commentator, he put it this way, he says, on the cross, Jesus experienced the restlessness of separation from God so that we can have the deep rest of knowing that God loves us and our sins have been forgiven. You know, it's interesting when you prep a message, sometimes you feel so very confident. This is the thing. This is is the message for this week. This is the thing from the heart of God. You know, all week I really wrestled with this because this is a, a different kind of message. It's almost an overly simplified message of saying religious moralism exists in all of our hearts and we have to say no to it and turn away from it because it drives us further from Jesus. It drives a wedge between us and Jesus and this ugly wedge is our own pride. We have to pull that up and it, it's such a simple thing. It's such an obvious thing. Typically, you either have a confidence in your heart or you almost feel insecure. Like, is this really the thing? Typically, the, the thing in those weeks when I'm like, I don't know, is this really the message for this week? Typically, the way that Lindsay and I will, will feel more confident than it is, is that on a Saturday, the day before giving that message, she and I will have just a rough day. Those of you who are married, you know what those days are like, where it's just a challenge and you're bonking heads at every turn. And we didn't have that day yesterday, thankfully, because we celebrated Mother's Day. But the other thing that happens is that there's spiritual attack with it. And last night, man, I had the gnarliest, like, demonic dreams almost all night long. At 2.30, I woke Lindsay up and said, you've got to pray with me. Like, this is tripping me out. And it it was me waking up this morning going, God, all week I've wrestled through. Is this really the message? Because this is so very simple. To just push on people, to to be aware of what exists in our own heart. Us, the self-proclaimed good people. Hell itself would fight against this. That's how we started. They'd build the city with lots of good people doing good things, but having no need of a savior. And what Jesus does is he takes an ax to that in someone else's life. And it's easy, if we're honest, it's easy when we slow down, it's easy to see these things in someone else's life, but it's really difficult to see it in our own because of self-deception. We can see this on display in others, but can we really see it in ourselves? Because when it manifests in our own lives, do you see it does what it did in them? It puts pride in place of humility. When you you become the moralist, it puts pride in place of humility. It puts resentment in place of patience. It puts impatience in the place of compassion. It puts anger in the place of grace. And in the end, it puts weariness in the place of joy and of peace. Those are the things we see and the self-righteous Pharisees who oppose Jesus in the story. Those are the things we see in our own lives when we need to slow down and repent, not just of our unrighteousness, 
but of our self-proclaimed righteousness. You know, by the end of this story, I don't know if you caught this detail in the way that it wraps up in chapter three in the the last verse that we read in verse six, but by the end of the story, it's both the moralist and the secularist. With their liberalism and progressiveness, neither of them want anything to do with Jesus. In fact, both want him removed completely because of what an offense he is to them. Did you catch it in that final verse where it says, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Listen, few things bring together two groups of people who don't usually get along like a common enemy does. And the Pharisees would teach that the good people are in and the bad people are out. The Herodians were their opposites. They were the progressive ones in the culture. They were the ones who came and said, the progressive and open-minded ones are the ones that are in. It's the old school, rigid bigots, the archaic ones that are out. Now, though these two groups of people were so very different, both these ideologies lead to self-righteousness and hostility towards Jesus because neither need a savior. They both have become their own saviors. Keller said it this way in his book the, entitled Jesus the King. He said, The gospel does not say the good are in and the bad are out, nor the open-minded are in and the judgmental are out. The gospel says the humble are in and the proud are out. That's what the gospel says. And that's the message of this passage. That's the message of Jesus' attack at the self-righteousness that existed in, in this moralistic system that existed in the hearts of these individuals. Listen, think for a moment, even in your own life, what's the thing that you feel the, the most pressure and anxiety, the most stressed about? What's the thing that internally just drives you? For some who are younger, maybe it's to get into that school or or to land that future job or career. Maybe it's to find someone to love who, who, who can be, you can be loved and accepted by. It's to get maybe that promotion. It's the next step. And then, then it's to, to launch your children well, the step beyond that step. And then it's wanting to be wanted by your grandchildren or needed by your community. What are the things that drive us? What if we went a little bit deeper? What if the greatest fear beneath those things is actually to be accepted and fulfilled and loved. And those underlying motives that drive you, they're the things that drive you to want to get into that school or to have that successful career or to, to want to be wanted and needed and loved. And ultimately what we do is we convince ourselves that acceptance and fulfillment and love are found in doing more and trying harder. And it's exhausting. What if the greatest pressure you feel is to secure for yourself a good future where you can be accepted and loved? And what if that was ultimately paid for, earned, and secured by another on your behalf? And what if it cost him everything to do it for you? And what if today you can live at rest knowing that you are already loved and forgiven and good enough? How freeing would that be? Because that is the gospel of Jesus. Most of us work and work trying to prove ourselves to convince God and others and even ourselves that we're good people. That work is never over unless we rest in the gospel. 
unless we turn away and turn back to the cross. When we remember that there's nothing that God requires of you that he has not also provided for you. My friends, that is the gospel. And maybe you're here today and you just need to be reminded to turn back that direction and recenter yourself on that truth. Or maybe you're here and you're an observer. You don't know that you really believe this. And you would have thought that, that we're just like any other religious group until you hear me say that the gospel is not a list of requirements. The, go- the gospel is news, past tense, something that was done and accomplished for you that you must believe and embrace by faith. That we will not put a yoke on your shoulders for you to carry, a burden for you to bear, because Jesus carried a cross in your place already. Because you don't have to work hard to prove to yourself or to convince God or anyone else that you're a good person or good enough. That that work can be over because of the rest you can find in Jesus. That, my friends is what we celebrate each week. And that, my friends, is what we have to fight to keep at the forefront of our minds because of some of the messy brokenness that exists still in our hearts.